Welcome back, friends, to our study from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, We looked at chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians last week. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And since Paul is continuing his argument that he began in chapter 8, let me remind you about his argument in chapter 8. In chapter 8, Paul is talking about the topic of eating meat that is offered to idols. And he is painting the picture that spiritually uh, Christians have the right to eat meat that is offered to idols, and they can do so with a clear conscience. Uh, They have that liberty in Christ. Uh, That's the best way to get meat at a good price in a cosmopolitan city like Corinth. Uh, It is also a good way to uh, be able to be part of the community and enjoy the barbecues that happen after some sacrifices in some of those pagan idols. And Paul is convinced, like a lot of the early Christians evidently there in Corinth were convinced, that you could participate by eating the meat and not allow that to be a way that you're giving homage to the idols. So he's saying that if you're of a certain maturity, a certain spiritual strength, where you can differentiate uh, between worship of an idol and just eating some meat that you've gotten at a good price, then you have the right. You have the right, you have the liberty to eat that meat. Now, he says, though, in chapter 8, that if your right to eat that meat somehow harms a brother or sister in Christ, then you need to give up that right. You need to waive that right. Uh, Love has to trump your rights. And uh, though I'm sure maybe on a different topic, Paul might would answer differently. Paul would certainly say uh, it's a a matter of great importance when you let go of a right. But uh, there are times he would say for the sake of love, for the sake of your neighbor, you let go of some of your rights. You let go of some of your liberties. Uh, And he has said that in chapter 8. Now what he's going to do in chapter 9 is to show the people in Corinth how he has given up some of his rights because of a greater good. He has given up some of his rights as an apostle, as a preacher of the gospel that's been sent out by Jesus Christ. Uh, There are certain things he has the right to do. He is at liberty to do, but for the sake of the greater good. Uh, the preaching of the gospel. Paul is going to let those rights go. Uh, Lest you think that this is some type of spiritual theological argument relating only to the first century experience in the Greco-Roman world, uh, think about our culture right now. Think about our nation right now. Um, People are battling. People are having strong disagreements over their rights over uh, the exercise of their rights. And our rights are great things. They're God-given, the ones that are rights to us from God. There are certain rights that we bear because we're created in the image of God. There are those inalienable rights that are ours 
because they've been given to us by our Creator. But Paul even says that as great as our rights might be, our liberty might be, that love has to trump those rights at times. And he's saying that uh, sometimes you have to waive your right. You have to get up the, give up the exercise of your right uh, because of love of neighbor. And he's telling people to do that in regards to eating meat offered to idols. And he's showing that how he has an apostle, as an apostle, uh, has certain rights. But because of his ministry and the greater good of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, he has given up his rights. So with that, let's get into the text. I do want us to look at the first 14 verses of chapter 9. Paul starts off as a good uh, rhetorician, teacher, sage in the Greco-Roman world with a series of rhetorical questions. Uh, they're rhetorical because you know the answer. Uh, the answer is implied in the question. Um, the answer, by the way, is, is yes. And here are the rhetorical questions that Paul begins with. Am I not free? Well, Paul certainly is free. He's a Roman citizen, so he has uh, uh, great freedoms as the Roman citizen. The ancient Greco-Roman world was a world that could be as uh, great as 40% slaves. And Paul is free. In, in more ways than one, Paul is free. So he says, am I not free? He then says, am I not an apostle? Um, of course, the answer is yes. The word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, apostolos. It means someone who has been sent. He is an apostle. Oftentimes in Christian tradition, if we just refer to someone as the apostle, we're always referring to Paul. He says, I am, am I not an apostle? And of course, the answer is yes. Uh, and he's an apostle because of the answer to the next question, he says, continuing in verse 1, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Uh, particularly in the book of Acts, an apostle is someone that has been sent out, but specifically uh, in the case of the New Testament gospel, been sent out by Jesus Christ. They have seen Jesus and they have been sent out by Jesus. Uh, now you recall, Paul was not one of the original disciples. Paul was not with the, uh, the historic Jesus there as he did ministry in, in the Galilee and Judea. But Paul is saying, though, even though he did not participate with the historic earthly Jesus during the historic earthly Jesus' ministry, that he nonetheless has seen the Lord. He is an apostle that has seen the Lord, been sent out by the Lord. And of course, for Paul, this experience of seeing the Lord uh, happened for Paul on the road to Damascus, the city of Damascus. Paul saw the resurrected, exalted Lord there post-resurrection, post-Easter. So Jesus appeared to Paul. Paul has seen the Lord. He is an apostle. He's been sent out by the Lord. And in the book of Acts, uh, an apostle is uh, preeminently someone that has been sent out by Jesus. And Paul qualifies. And then the next rhetorical question, he says, Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? He's referring to the Christians there in the church that he founded in the city of Corinth. And he's referring to them as his workmanship. 
he is making sure they understand that they are in Christ uh, in part because uh, they received the ministry of Paul. They're his workmanship. Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. He says to the people there in Corinth, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Uh, he says they are his seal of apostleship. A seal in the ancient world was um, an insignia that would be made, made probably by signet ring in melted wax or clay. Uh, and it would be a seal that would verify the authenticity of something. Like you would place that seal on a, on a closed letter and you know that the person who, who sent that letter was the one who closed that letter and authenticated that letter with a seal. Paul is saying here that the Corinthian Christians are the seal of his apostleship. You could just translate the word seal there as the proof the authenticity, the proof of Paul's apostleship. So Paul is saying here on many different levels that he is an apostle. He meets all the qualification, including the fruitfulness of his ministry as an apostle because of the people that he led to Christ there in Corinth. So beginning at verse 3, he says, This is my defense. He's arguing his right uh, as an apostle, this is my defense. The word defense there in the Greek is apologia. Uh, it's the word uh, that the English word apology or apologetic comes from. But apologia in the Greek doesn't mean that you're just sorry for something. That's usually what apology means in English. Apologia means a defense. Um, it's a legal term. Uh, in, in Christian theological circles, apologetics is the art of being able to defend the faith. Uh, we need to do a better job uh, in Western Christianity, uh, in this post-Christian culture, of defending the faith, of showing the rational nature, the reasonable nature of our faith, of showing that the, the Christian faith is the uh, preeminent way to joy and happiness in this life and in the life to come. We've had great defenders of the faith uh, in Christian history. Uh, C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest defenders of the faith and apologist of the Christian faith in the 20th century. Uh, we've been gifted by many great people throughout our history who have carried out the ministry of apologetics. Paul is talking about that here when he says, this is my apologia, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Evidently, there are people in Corinth, particularly now that Paul has left Corinth, uh, who are attacking Paul. Uh, they are claiming he's not an apostle, therefore he doesn't have the rights of an apostle. That's what he means by these people who are examining him. They're judging him. Um, but he's saying this is his defense to the people who are examining him. Verse 4, he says, Do we not, do we as apostles, he's one of them, do we not have the right to eat and drink? So here he's going back to what he's discussed in chapter 8 about the exercise of our rights. And what Paul is saying here, now that he's painted a picture that he is a full-fledged apostle, that that means certain things. That means that he has certain rights. And that's what he's going to begin to talk about now. Verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Uh, he's talking, going to talk about the support 
of the church, the Christian community, for the apostles. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So he's saying here that as an apostle, he has a right to be traveling with a believing wife. Uh, Paul is not married at this point in his life. You know that from what we've read thus far in 1 Corinthians. But evidently, a lot of the early apostles were married. And because of the great distances that they traveled in the Mediterranean world, they frequently would take their wives with them, their believing wives with them. And Paul is explicitly mentioning uh, Cephas here. Cephas is the Aramaic title or the Aramaic name for Peter. So evidently, Peter was known as someone who traveled with his wife. He says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? He's mentioning Peter, Cephas, and he's mentioning the brothers of the Lord. We know from the Gospels that Jesus had brothers. I guess you could say half-brothers. These brothers would have been the uh, subsequent children of Mary and Joseph, or they could have been uh, children of Joseph with a previous um, wife. Perhaps uh, Joseph was an older widower. Uh, But the Gospels call these brothers, brothers of Jesus. Uh, The most famous brother of Jesus in the New Testament, the one that Paul writes about elsewhere, is James. Uh, That's the brother of Jesus that James mentions. Four brothers are mentioned by name, In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3, Paul seems to only know one of them, James. James was the head of the Christian community in Jerusalem after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Evidently, uh, the apostles, including perhaps uh, some of the brothers of Jesus, perhaps James specifically, and Peter, Cephas, took along their believing wives with them when they went about on their um, missionary journey. So Paul says he would have that right. Now again, Paul is, is, is not married. He's not married at this point. Many of us believe he had been married earlier because he was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He probably was married at a previous point. Something has has happened to his wife. We've talked about that uh, in earlier studies, but Paul is saying he has that right. He has the right to have a wife. He has a right to have a wife accompany him on his travels. Verse 6, he says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? At this point, he's talking about Barnabas, another one of the apostles. Barnabas uh, was an apostle that accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. Uh, They later uh, subsequently had a falling out, but they journeyed together. And evidently, we know that Paul, and here it appears that Barnabas did likewise, supported himself financially while he carried out the ministry of an apostle. Uh, You could say that Paul had a bivocational ministry. Uh, He was an apostle, but you also know from the book of Acts that he had a uh, profession that uh, earned him his living, and we know that to be a tent maker. 
A tent maker really means leather worker in the ancient world. Tents were made out, made out of leather, and so were a lot of other things in the ancient world made out of leather. Uh, that would come in very handy for traveling and for travelers. So Paul was a tent maker, and perhaps Barnabas participated in that. So he's saying that of all the apostles, only Barnabas and he, Paul, um, seem to refrain uh, from taking an income from their ministry. Or as he says it here in verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Uh, he has the right to refrain. He has the right. Uh, he and Barnabas, they have the right to refrain from working for a living, bivocationally, as a tent maker perhaps. Um, they have the right to refrain from that and to make their living uh, by their work as an apostle. That's what he's going to argue at this point. He's going to do it rather extensively, uh, showing some examples from common life and showing some examples even uh, from the Old Testament law where people in ministry have the right to receive their income by way of that ministry. Uh, I always feel a little awkward uh, when I'm teaching this part of the New Testament, because in a sense, Paul is making the argument here that you need to pay your preacher. Uh, a person in full-time ministry has the right, has the right to um, earn a living from that ministry. That's what Paul's saying here. Or is he saying is only he and Barnabas the only two uh, that, that have to refrain from working for a living? Uh, they have a right to earn their living. Here's his examples. Here's Paul's examples, beginning at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of the fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So soldiers are kept up by someone else. Uh, people who plant the vineyard get to participate in the fruit of the vineyard and get to make their living from the vineyard. And uh, people who tend to flock get to uh, make their living from the produce of that flock. He goes on, verse 8, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? So he's going to talk now uh, about the law of God. He's talked about common life uh, with these other professions who can make a living because and by way of their profession. And here he's going to talk about the law of God. He says, does not the law say the same? And again, the argument he's making here is those that are in full-time ministry uh, should be able to make their living from full-time ministry. He's going to quote the law. And you may be wondering, where does the law of God say that? Um, Paul's going to tell you. Look at verse 9. He says, For it is written in the law of Moses, and he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, It is written in the law of Moses this, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So, in other words, he's talking about a custom where the ox would thresh the grain. They would walk around and around and around, and the mill would thresh the grain. But you would allow... You would allow that ox to eat uh, while the ox was threshing the grain. You would allow that ox to eat, um, make its living uh, by, by virtue of its work. And that's why he's saying you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. In other words, you need to let that ox eat. You need to let that ox uh, find its livelihood because of what it's doing for a living. Uh, and then he says uh, in the 
the rest of verse 9, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Paul is being a typical, stereotypical rabbi at this point, a Jewish teacher at this point. He's participating uh, in a Hebrew practice called Kalval Vahomer, which means um, loosely you're arguing, arguing from the lesser to the greater. In other words, if God will allow the oxen to make its livelihood, to sustain its life from what a simple oxen would do, would someone who's carrying out the work of God not be able to do um, likewise? An argument from the lesser, the ox, to the greater, someone who's uh, carrying out the work of God. Uh, Verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? And again, he's making the argument that apostles can earn their living as a result of their apostolic work. He goes on, it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. This perhaps comes from the book of wisdom, the book of Sirach which is a book that we know as an apocryphal book or deuterocanonical book. It's not one of the standard books of the Old Testament, but it is a book highly valued by the early Christian community and the Christian community, the Book of Wisdom or Book of Sirach. That's perhaps what he's quoting here when he says, the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Again, making their living, receiving their livelihood because of the work they're doing. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So he's making the argument strongly that he has the right. He has the right to make his living by virtue of the work that he's doing as an apostle. He's saying others have this right. He's saying he especially has this right regarding uh, the the people in Corinth because uh, he founded them. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we, do we, do not we even more? Because he's the founder of the church in Corinth. But then here's where Paul shocks us. Here's where Paul shocked the community. He's saying the apostles have the right Uh, to earn their living by virtue of their work. But here's Paul's conclusion to this. Nevertheless, we're in the second part of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We have not made use of this right. In other words, we have not received income from you. It was our right to. Because we're the ones who were in ministry there in Corinth. We founded the church in Corinth. We were giving full-time work there in Corinth. But he says, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So you see Paul tying this back to chapter 8. Where you may have the right to eat the meat offered to idols. But as a mature Christian, you need to learn how to let go of your rights, waive your rights, relinquish your rights for the greater good of your neighbor. Paul is saying this here, and this was not typical for the other apostles. Paul was saying here that he did likewise for the church at Corinth. Now, Paul um, received income from Philippi. He receives income, we know from 2 Corinthians, from the Corinthian church later. 
But evidently when Paul was there in their midst fulfilling the apostolic ministry, he did not receive income from them. Uh, he was unique in being a bivocational minister, and he, uh, he was involved in tent making. So he earned his own living even though he had the right to be supported by the Christian community there in Corinth. And he did that. He made that choice himself because he did not want, put, want to put any obstacle in the way of the preaching of the gospel. And for Paul, I think this, most of us think this is what he means in Corinth. Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. Lots and lots and lots of Greco-Roman teachers were coming through that large cosmopolitan city. And a lot of those teachers obviously were making their living from their students. And in, a, in an attempt for Paul to set himself out ahead of the pack of teachers there in the, uh, that cosmopolitan, metropolitan community of Corinth, uh, he refused to accept an income from the, his ministry there in Corinth. Again, the point he's making is he had the right to do that. But sometimes as mature Christians, we have to relinquish our rights, let them go for a greater good. And again, he's going to keep pointing out he had the right to receive his income, to uh, have his livelihood paid by the people there in Corinth. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, he could be talking about pagan temple here. Most of us assume he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem because this really is directly something referenced to the temple in Jerusalem. He says, do not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple. And those who serve at the altar serve, share in the sacrificial offering. We know from uh, Hebrew history, we know from the Old Testament, we know from uh, the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, we know from, for instance, go look at Numbers 18, chapter 18. The Levites, the priests, received a portion of all the sacrifice to the temple. And that's how the Levites and the priests in the temple uh, earned their living. Uh, they received a share on the sacrificial offering. So Paul, again, is making the case that he, in apostolic full-time ministry, has the right to be supported uh, by the people in the community. And then he actually says, here he brings out the big guns. He's, caught, he's talked about common life. He's talked about the Hebrew Bible. He's talked about the uh, practice at the temple. But in verse 14, and this is where we'll stop at today, he even says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So he's referencing Jesus now. He says, In the same way, the Lord, Jesus Christ, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Um, he's saying even Jesus says you pay your full-time leaders of the faith community. Um, we've heard Paul say this now for 2,000 years, and we wonder what is he referencing uh, from the Gospels. What is he referencing from Jesus? Uh, you can go and look up, for instance, um, Luke chapter 10, verse 7. That may be where what Paul is referencing uh, is recorded in the Gospels as a saying from Jesus. But he's saying that even Jesus proclaimed uh, that those who proclaim the Gospel should get their living by the Gospel. So uh, Paul is talking about um, paying those in, in ministry 
paying those who are serving the faith community uh, full-time. He's saying that's certainly the right of those who serve the faith community. Paul is bringing up this topic because he really does not like talking about himself, but he's bringing up this topic simply to say uh, that he has a right, he had a right to receive income from the people there in Corinth. He chose not to because he's not really talking about uh, how people in ministry are supported in making a living. He's talking about how as mature Christians, we've got to be able to give up our rights sometimes for the greater good. Uh, You know, I mean, I mentioned it last week. I even see people in this culture, people who profess Christianity right now during a pandemic who who refuse to give up their right um, and wear a mask. I heard someone say the other day they they didn't think that they, um, people could tell them to be muzzled. Well, sometimes it, you have a right to not wear a mask, obviously. And it would be a sad day if, if we were ever forced to wear a mask. But it should never come to that, particularly amongst Christians. We should be willing and eager and the first to let go of rights, rights that we deserve, rights that we've been given, rights that are part of our liberty as Americans and even our liberty in Christ. We should be able to relinquish those rights for the sake of our neighbor, for the sake of the common good, especially for the sake of love. Let me make one last comment um, on this topic because there's not many places in the New Testament where you see that um, uh, the roots that gave rise to uh, uh, a professional class of clergy or priests or ministers, but uh, this is where it comes from. I mean, the Jewish faith did it, the Christian faith did it. Uh, We still have bivocational people that are involved in ministry, but uh, that's always been the minority, like Paul, that's always been the minority, both in Judaism and in Christianity, um, because of what we have in the the scriptures. Uh, Let me say this, one thing I've said to churches uh, throughout my ministry, and I, I really said it more as a district superintendent uh, to churches that I was not affiliated with except as our district superintendent. I always remind Christians, I always remind churches that um, they do not pay their pastors uh, for the ministry. Um, we're not in that kind of commercial relationship. You don't pay me to do ministry. You don't pay me to preach. Uh, Paul's going to say, as we continue in chapter 9, that he's compelled to preach. Uh, he couldn't stop preaching even if he tried. And that's, that's true. Those of us that do this full-time, we know that we, we, woe is us if we preach not the gospel, is what Paul says. Um, so we, we're going to preach regardless. Uh, so churches don't pay us to do ministry. Here's the truth. Churches support us so that we are free and unencumbered to do ministry. Uh, That's the Christian perspective on why our clergy, our pastors, our priests, our friars, in the Jewish tradition, our rabbis, um, are supported. They're not paid in exchange for the ministry they do. You know, doing ministry is not like giving people a commodity, uh, but we're supported. And I, I cannot begin to tell you how grateful I am for the ways that that my family and I have been supported for almost 40 years now by generous, generous, gracious Christians, church folks. They've supported me. They supported us so that I would be free.
and unencumbered uh, to carry out the gospel ministry. And um, I'm grateful for the people that have done that, and I know that God uh, will bless the people uh, that, that make full-time gospel ministry uh, a possibility in the body of Christ. So next week, we will pick up at chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians 9. Thank you again for joining me in this in-depth Bible study. Thank you again for your commitment to the Word of God.